You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. So we got to talk about this Ulysses S. Grant getting arrested story. It's one of those things I first wrote off as, oh, these journalists, they're trying to do the, you know, history beats up politics thing, but they're using a really bad example. It's not really that. There's a little bit more there in comparison to today's events than I thought, just a little bit. Ulysses S. Grant was a horseman. He liked horses, and he liked to ride them fast. And he liked a lot of machine. Raw horses that had to be broken in were just fine. His son Fred Grant said he preferred to ride the most unmanageable mount, the largest and most powerful one, the kind that no one else but Grant would approach. When he rode, he rode with skill. James Longstreet, who was a fellow cadet at West Point and would end up fighting against him in the Civil War, said that Grant was noted in horsemanship and was the most proficient in the academy. Rider and horse were held together like the fabled centaur of myth. So, you know, when he goes from the military, where his horsemanship is needed, valued, got to move around quick on that battlefield, to the political world, he gets his first notes of trouble. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A New York newspaper reports that in 1866, when he's at a political event, he's still in the military at this time, but at a political event, and insisted that they do a race at that event, he flew through Central Park in a fast coach. The story was without foundation, Grant said when that story appeared in the New York newspapers. Well, actually, what he said is, it's almost without foundation. I took the reins of the coach, but there was no fast driving. Hmm. Now, the story might have very well been true, no matter what he says, because when he gets to Washington as president, Grant's fast horse racing is with him, and he flies down the street around 13th and M. Uh, it's a, it's an, a place where, it's a nice neighborhood, let's say that. This might seem harmless, riding a little fast in your coach. But it's like speeding today. It's potentially dangerous. And the D.C. government was on this case. Grant's actual driving hadn't injured anyone we know of, but recently another driver had injured a six-year-old, and the government of D.C. made it a priority. They told their police to look out for this. It's a nice part of D.C. too, and by gosh, it's alarming to the peace of the citizenry. There's a D.C. police officer, a Henry William West, who is assigned and told by his chief specifically to watch out for fast coach driving. He sees a coach whip by and hails him over. Imagine his surprise when, excuse me, and there is not only the President of the United States, but his former commander-in-chief, his former commander, I should say, because West had been in the Army. He's interviewed much later in 1908, this policeman in D.C., and tells his story. But it's not just him. There's also D.C. police records that confirm Grant being cited for speeding. So, West says in this case, Grant, you're going at, a, uh, Mr. President, too high a speed. It's not just the speed, West tells the President. You are setting a bad example for other gentlemen. Grant apologizes and says he will hold his team down to regulation speed. But it's the next day. The next day, and West is out and sees carriage, as he says, burning up the roadway. And he notices now, this carriage is not alone. It's racing with several other people. This is an area close to a raceway where people would engage in races prior to getting to the official raceway. So West hails him over again. 
Mr. President, we had spoken about this. Grant claimed to have forgotten their conversation. Do you think I was violating the speeding laws, officer, he says. Yes, Mr. President, you were. He blames the machinery. These are thoroughbreds, and there's no holding them. I'm very sorry, Mr. President, West says, to have to do it, for you are the chief of the nation, and I am nothing but a policeman. But duty is duty, and I'll have to place you under arrest. Now, that's West's account from 1908, and it's the only source for the conversation that occurs. But D.C. police records dug up in 2012 uh, confirmed the arrest, and actually, President Grant was cited several times, along with a lot of other government officials. So there's a little more here to this story of Grant's arrest uh, in comparison to some of the recent events than when I first heard it and was rating it off. Um, Grant was warned, and he still did it. He didn't even wait a day. He was engaging in an activity of racing, not just getting a little fast with his own carriage. Still, and all, this is misdemeanor behavior. It was a misdemeanor at best in the state, or I should say in the city, in the District of Columbia. And also the press at this time, didn't jump on it because they didn't do that sort of thing then. But Grant is brought to the police station. You can see where this could be a big story. He pays his $20 and is soon off. He also tells Officer West that he should not worry about any repercussions from this. He admires a man doing his duty. They talk about West's service in the war a bit. They talk about the Civil War a bit. And Grant gets back to the White House. There's a little more to the story than I thought. I mean, the policeman said he couldn't ignore it because of the example he was setting to other gentlemen, to others. And Grant wasn't acting faithfully when he said, I won't do this again after his warning. So you've got some very relevant points here for today's event. But they don't match up exactly in magnitude. You have former President Trump being arrested, indicted, appeared before court to answer a charge of not guilty for a felony and for 34 counts of falsification of business records. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg has charged him with these E-class felonies. This is the lowest class of felony in the state of New York, and it's used when falsification of business records is combined with other crimes. Okay, it's a misdemeanor falsification of business records. You're not supposed to do it. You can see pretty quickly in the business-heavy state, financial-heavy state of New York and uh, New York City, where someone falsifying business records for various purposes, for tax schemes, for getting a loan, you know, is a really bad thing to do and a bad example to set to other people and must be pursued, but it's not a felony in and of itself. It has to be combined with another crime. So far, we have not seen, as I'm recording this, the indictment to know what that other crime is. We know that this all involves, we know what the falsification is. We know that it occurred in the payoff of hush money to adult film star Stormy Daniels, and then claiming that instead of an expense to his business, his personal expense, or even direct campaign expense, that it was a fee to his attorney at the time, Michael Cohen, and written off as a legal fee. Um, that's a no-no. These are That's a big no-no. You can't um, use your lawyer's legal fees uh, to conduct separate business transactions and disguise it as such. So you have all these kind of misdemeanor behavior. What we don't know is what that second crime is, and that's something that will probably come out of court. In fact, it will come out long before because there will be discovery and other motions and things like this. Speculation is obviously that it's a election reporting crime and or conspiracy. And, you know, you, you a pattern of behavior there's actually two affairs that have been noted in the news that he wanted to keep a secret part of the 2016 election. This is fueling speculation that the whole thing might be predicated on. You are using the falsification of business records in order to affect an election. Listen, I mean, I've got um, Ken White, an attorney, 
And we'll talk a little bit more about all of that. So a president is arrested. It's not as shocking to me as to the rest of the nation for a couple of reasons. I really think it's a technicality that Trump is the first since Grant arrested, the only indicted. He really had another. And it was way more damning and more of a negative for the United States of America. Um, and he had at least a third that was investigated with possible criminal repercussions throughout his presidency. And this is all because Richard Nixon was on the verge of indictment, but he resigned the presidency and he received a pardon from President Ford that was a very broad pardon, including all crimes that he may have committed. Hugely broad use of the pardon power. A draft indictment was composed, and Nixon was named as an unindicted co-conspirator by the grand jury. In all the cases relevant, there were 40 individuals who were charged in Watergate. And if Nixon had no role, if he doesn't show up at all, if you're just absolving him completely, then you couldn't use some of the conspiracy, because who were were these people convicted for conspiring with, if not Nixon? So that's why he's named again and again as a co-conspirator unindicted, because he was president at the time. The rules were difficult to parse. It would boggle the mind, said a DOJ lawyer in an opinion at that time, for a sitting president to be indicted. Nonetheless, the draft indictment was composed. Some on um, Prosecutor Leon Jaworski's staff wanted them to pursue an indictment up until the point of the pardon. So I consider all this a technicality, which sort of proves a little bit that maybe it's not the big deal historically that everyone makes of it. Not that it's not a big story. That's not what I'm saying. But shaking the foundations of the republic when you've had not only President Nixon almost indicted, but for a face, essentially, if you listen to Ford's accounts of it, a face-saving pardon. Nixon also, as we'll discuss, goes through um, a very embarrassing tax investigation that shows that he illegally deducted hundreds of thousands of dollars and turned his taxes from someone who was making 200000 at the time. You know, you can almost 10x that in today's dollars. And he paid the taxes of someone making 15000 because of his various deducting his, his papers. So he's under investigation for that as well. All the damage done to the Republic by a president being um, embarrassed like that um, and a president being under investigation like that happened. Are we getting a short memory about Whitewater and President Clinton and years, almost actually the entire presidency from just about the beginning, from 1994, when Democrats agree to and Clinton signs the renewal of the independent prosecutor law that Republicans had let expire because they didn't like the behavior of Lawrence Walsh around President Reagan and President Bush and Iran-Contra. They let it expire with glee. Some of them were clapping when the bill was expired. They all, President Clinton comes back to order and many of the same senators are getting on board with renewing it. Clinton, to avoid the appearance of wrongdoing, signs the independent prosecutor renewal bill. Um, In hindsight, I mean, it would work out pretty badly for him. Almost every remaining year of his presidency, he's going to be under investigation. And lest we forget, uh, those investigations included the possibility of criminal charges at all times. The president had to make a decision. He could choose truth or he could choose deception. The president chose deception. Yes, Ken Starr makes the decision to release a very public, very embarrassing, lewd, some might say, um, report to Congress, which goes public and it's published in books and the Starr report and things like that. So he decides to refer the matter to Congress. But he had the option of referring the matters around Whitewater and everything that got pulled into it to the court for criminal charges. He seeks the opinion of a outsourced lawyer, 
It's not the not directly the Department of Justice, but an outsourced lawyer, Ron Rotunda, who will turn out to have some partisan uh, bent, who says that, yes, indeed, you can indict a sitting president, which is a reversal of some of the things that had come out of DOJ in the 70s. So, again, this is kind of a technicality that we're talking about. There's never been a president where there's been any raising of, of some type of criminal charge that this is the first. So, So what do I mean? It's not that it's not a big deal. It's just it was never an impossible thing. Indeed, the framers of the Constitution took time, a lot of time, to think about a president behaving badly, about a possibly criminal behavior or even misdemeanor, high crimes and misdemeanor found in Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution. Misdemeanors, there was some debate, and that was added in because they didn't want it to just be things that would be crime. High crime implies it can be a crime, at least worthy of impeachment, to do something that you or I don't have the power to do because we don't have an office. For instance, not taking a very necessary action. Am I, it's not a crime in a, in, a, in a district or county of the United States, but it's high crime for a president to just not pursue something in their office. Um, that's impeachment, and that's all part of that. They specifically name treason and bribery as crimes that shall remove the president from office. Here's something else. It's not just the president. They place the president not ever in his or her zone of law, but along with all the other civil officers of the United States. So anyone who's thinking that there's a special rule for presidents in modern times they're not getting that out of the Constitution. The Constitution puts that president along with the vice president and the other civil officers of the United States. Anything you're doing for the president, if you're following that Constitution, you have to extend to judges. You have to extend to justices of the Supreme Court, yeah, cabinet officers, other federal officials. Uh, and maybe some of that does happen. If there's a little bit of discretion watching how much is statements you make, damaging reputation, things like that. Maybe that is something that's extended to federal judges. You know, it might be a little leeway. But if it's just a kind of disqualification from prosecution, doesn't seem to be envisioned because the Constitution says this directly. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office. You can't jail a president if you impeach them and convict them. And disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. That's a lot of constitutional ink in a sparsely written document, a purposely sparsely written document on presidential crime, to be saying that framers of the Constitution never envisioned that there might be a misbehaving uh, president. It was on It was on their minds. We're going to give this power to an individual. We're going to put a lot of limits and make sure that they're subject to the same laws as everyone else. They did not think men were angels. We know this, but there's something else to consider here. And it's real, I think some deference, some discretion, some prestige of the office to be considered, I'm sure interviewed one by one, the framers of the Constitution would expect and hope that a future president would be well-behaved. For many in the room, George Washington's leading the Constitutional Convention discussion, and that's their model. And they figured when they made the role eligible for unlimited re-election that they'd get him for eight years at least, they probably figured more. It was Washington's decision not to run for a third term. Maybe they get 12 years. He wasn't an old man. Anyway, after that, well, Washington's going to be okay, but what happens after that? Let's put some rules in place. Anyway, here's the point. Simply no basis for any thought that the president has any kind of special powers. It's all simply we hope that they will be the best person, but let's put lots of limits and let's include that clause that says that they're subject to the judgment of court after they're out of office by impeachment. I'll talk a little bit about some of the charges against Trump. I can't speak to all of the law more than I have already to know what Bragg has and what will be presented in court. Um, but I do want to say that um, 
I think two points of comparison are good, and that's Nixon and Clinton. And, um, you know, with other presidents, I think if you're on the opposite side, I know there's a lot of folks who are like, well, Lyndon Johnson should have been locked up or, you know, or, or I hated uh, Bush. Uh, there's a town in Vermont passed an ordinance that Bush or Cheney would be arrested if they came to that town. I don't know if they ever came to the town and I has absolutely no constitutional force. Uh, a court of people in Kuala Lumpur who have no basis of any government or the UN or anything like that have convicted Bush and Cheney on war crimes related to Iraq. I mean, there's things like that. We all, in the heat of politics, think of our opponents as as we hate them. We think of them as criminal because some of the policy changes that can result with them being in office is so different than our own wants. And so I get it. But you do have in the Clinton example in particular some real similarities that have me scratching my head when people are thinking this is something so fantastic and new. And Clinton spent his entire time as president. Well, this thing's been going on for over three years. Tens of millions of dollars have been spent. With the shadow of possible criminal charges, possible civil, possible impeachment at the end there. And there was not much thought on the part of the key prosecutor, Ken Starr, that about the damage to the presidency, nor was there much thought on the hand, you know, on the part of the political opponents, Republicans in Congress, on the damage to the country or the presidency that would occur. For- I regretted the whole thing, but it had to be done. When the information came to us that the president of the United States may have been in the process of committing perjury, obstructing justice. We went to the Attorney General of the United States, Janet Reno. She agreed. And so the rest is all history. That's what I try to do in this book. And let's remind people of some of that history. How did your office get the tip about Monica Lewinsky? It came to us from a very well-known witness, uh, but in the Vince Foster death investigation, her name, Linda Trubb. Linda was the last person in the White House who we know to have seen Vince Foster alive before he took his own life Mm -hmm. uh, in Fort Marcy Park. And so she came to us with this information that she was being asked to file a perjury-ridden affidavit. Mm -hmm. That's how it began. From uh, investigating a president. It was something that was done simultaneously while he operated as president almost through his time, culminating in an impeachment where he's conducting attacks on Iraq at the same time that there's an impeachment vote in Congress. And uh, there's, you know, famously, um, famously the Republicans, at least, you know, Newt Gingrich will give him a pass and say, you know, we're not going to accuse you, accuse you of wagging the dog, do what you have to do. So he spent... A very compartmentalized presidency. And all that I think has happened now that we're in 2023, and it's kind of amazing to think of that presidency as two decades away already. Because he was such a young guy and everything was so new then. And you have to bring yourself back to the real president and not the Bill Clinton that appears as a former president, commentator in politics, husband of Hillary and 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 all the like. But how he was as president, it was under constant investigation, stemming from Whitewater. So you started with the land deal, Whitewater, and it ended up all the way over at Monica Lewinsky. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. What was going through our mind is we had seen this pattern before. Uh, Let's find a job for another character in the investigation, Webb Hubble. Let's get him clients uh, so that, in our view, he would not cooperate fully with our investigation. Mm -hmm. It was the same modus operandi. We felt that the president had not been truthful in the Whitewater phase of the investigation. Mm -hmm. So it was the same pattern. Whitewater comes out of the investigation, you know, this is what a lot of people don't talk about, but it comes out of the investigation of a Reconstruction Trust official. So if what you're looking for is grace from prosecutors, some kind of discretion, um, this person's the president, we need to take it easy, we need to slow down. I mean, it's hard to see that in the case of President Clinton over the Whitewater case. I mean, yes, throughout it, Ken Starr, Frisk, other Ray, other prosecutors, independent counsels, they were called. They actually eliminated the name prosecutor and called it independent counsel when they renewed it to make it sound less prejudicial. I don't think that it actually worked. I think every time we heard independent counsel Ken Starr's name during the 90s, it seemed just as damning. The history of these independent counsels, whether it's Walsh or star, they'll just keep saying, I'm doing my job, doing my job, you know, have to keep investigating. And um, you don't get a lot of grace. You don't get cleared often from prosecutors. It's very rare. The other thing that's very evident in the star investigation, particularly when Whitewater turns to Lewinsky, is that star attempts to turn several people just in the way that one would with a criminal case, an appraiser, in Little Rock, that is hounded until eventually Star has to clear her, but she's threatened with her and she, she suffers in terms of her own job uh, because she would not say something about the Clintons. There is uh, Susan McDougal, the wife of James McDougal, who goes to prison because she will not talk about uh, Bill Clinton. And of course, Monica Lewinsky's whole case comes from a threatening of charges against her if she does not talk about the affair with Bill Clinton. So you don't see, I mean, yes, a prosecutor's there to get some facts, but there is that behavior of trying to turn people against the main target. Um, that's evidence in the in the Whitewater case. Monica Lewinsky has said the release of the Star Report, the 445-page report, was one of the worst days of her life. She wants an apology. Will you apologize to her? No, uh, I, I won't because, unfortunately, the facts are the facts, and we were put in the position that under the statute in which I was appointed, I had a duty, I had a responsibility. I will say, and I've said it many times, I regret all the pain that resulted to so many, including to the nation. Of course I regret that. But, no, I can in conscience uh, say uh, to Monica, anything other than I'm sorry that the whole thing happened. The day that she was questioned in a hotel room was dubbed Operation Prom Night. Why was a sting operation necessary? It wasn't a sting operation. What it was was simply a mechanism of trying to confirm what we thought we knew and we did know it. These were in fact the facts and to give her the opportunity to cooperate with the investigation. Had she cooperated, this entire matter would have been wound up in a matter of several weeks and the nation would have been spared all this. Mm -hmm. So we treated her with dignity, we treated her with respect and said here is the possibility. You can cooperate with the investigation which has been authorized by the Attorney General uh, and was destined to be authorized by the, spe- by the special division. And now please cooperate and let's get this over with. Whitewater, ha- so much time has passed, so let's maybe explain a little bit. March 1992, there's a New York Times story, which is about something that was known and discussed in Arkansas politics, but hadn't yet come up in the 1992 presidential campaign that Bill Clinton's running in, because 
First of all, Clinton is having some problems initially as a candidate in the Jennifer Flowers scandal has come out, and nobody's sure if he's necessarily going to be the nominee. But by March 1992, starting to see him advance, New York Times comes out with a story that the Clintons uh, had invested and lost money in the Whitewater Development Corporation in Arkansas. There is a Resolution Trust Corporation investigator who is looking into the failure of a savings and loan. Now, we discussed the savings and loan issue on this podcast. There are savings and loans that fail all throughout the country, and it is fraught with political corruption, the connections between savings and loans, like some of the donations they made, you know, will scar a lot of politicians, um, including members of the Bush family, including John McCain, including Alan Cranston, the Democratic senator, very popular senator in California. And here's where it reaches the Clintons. This investigator, L. Gene Lewis, starts looking for connections between the savings and loan failure and the Clintons. And she claims to find it. In September 1992, while the election campaign is going on, she's submitting criminal referrals to the FBI, naming Bill and Hillary Clinton as witnesses. She claims throughout, and will always claim, that she's just an investigator doing her job. The U.S. attorney in Little Rock and the FBI determines that the referral lacks merit. This is where we see Lewis not take that very lightly and keep calling the office, keeps calling the FBI. She issues several additional referrals throughout the campaign and into the time that Clinton's president. Repeatedly is calling this U.S. attorney's office regarding the case, then calls the Justice Department, calls the case. It's enough that eventually Lewis's referrals become public knowledge, and she'll testify before the various congressional committees. The source of this is that David Hale claimed in November 1993 that Bill Clinton had pressured him into providing an illegal $300,000 loan to Susan McDougal, who is the Clinton's partner in the Whitewater land deal. However, David Hale had not mentioned Clinton in any other of the times when the FBI investigated this, and they had been investigating it since 1989. It's only after coming into indictment himself in 1993 when he says, oh, Bill Clinton pressured me. Okay. People at the RTC are suspecting that Lewis has more than a normal investigator's interest in this Whitewater deal. She, in turn, suspects that the organization is shutting her down when a lawyer, April Breslaw, a senior attorney, comes to Kansas City to check on her. She tapes the conversation. Now, it's not normal for a subordinate to tape, you know, a conversation like this. Uh, All of this is going to come out later in congressional committees to suggest that Lewis has more than just a normal investigator's interest in this. Um, Lewis writes a memo to herself that says, the head people wanted to be able to say that water, white water did not cause a loss, a loss to Madison. But the problem is that so far no one has been able to say that to them. They want an answer that can get them off the hook. Eventually, Lewis said that she had heard and seen enough, that she felt like she was being shut down, And she makes contact with congressional investigators, including Jim Leach, who's leading the House investigations into this Whitewater matter. She plays the tape that she made of her conversation with the RTC lawyer. She gives him internal RTC documents and memos, copies of her emails. Leach goes public, makes a presentation on the House floor with this knowledge, and Lewis starts cooperating with the Congress, and with special independent counsel at that time, Robert Fisk. It only comes out later when the Democratic counsel on the Senate Whitewater Committee starts talking about this person, Lewis. They find that on her hard drive is a personal letter that she writes to a friend. This is in February 1992, a month before she begins the investigation, that says that presidential candidate Bill Clinton is a lying bastard. His ability to lie surpasses that of our most astute politicians. I never slept with that woman, quoth the illustrious Governor Bill Clinton. 
Everybody in Arkansas knows he did, the lying bastard. And then he puts her on the state payroll. But there's a bit more. Um, ben Van East, the Democratic Whitewater Council, cites material from the agent in charge of the FBI field office in Little Rock, whose notes on telephone conversations shows Lewis frequently checking on the progress of her recommendations for criminal referrals. The agent, Steve Irons, also wrote that Lewis thought the Madison investigation could alter history. In turn, Lewis says, oh, she meant that comment sarcastically. Uh, Senator Boxer in the Senate Whitewater investigation finds that about a year before the investigation, Lewis entered into a contract for T-shirt logos that spell out the acronym B-I-T-C-H for Boys I'm Taking Charge Here and Bill I've Taken Charge Hillary with a picture of Hillary Clinton's name on it. So she was going to sell T-shirts that were anti-Clinton. Lewis explains in the hearing, no, I think it's a compliment to say B-I-T-C-H. And boys, I'm taking charge here. I admire the first lady. She has strong personality. After nearly a day of Senate questioning, the hearing was suspended when Lewis, who suffers from high blood pressure, asked for a break. The Capitol physician was summoned and found her blood pressure elevated. She was taken to George Washington University Hospital. Okay, so this is where Whitewater originates from. And so there certainly was enough there to for the Clintons to talk about some partisan um, beginnings for the whole investigation that will lead to Whitewater and other things like the travel office and, and other scandals that are really, when seen with the, the events that are going to come afterwards, really pale in comparison. But the Clintons didn't have a lot of friends in Washington at that time. You know, he was elected, Bill Clinton, came from Arkansas. It's not exactly the center of the National Democratic Party. The people in Congress were used to being in charge. And so there was still a lot of criticism, a bit of bipartisan concern over the Clintons and over this story. Maybe some of the Clintons' behaviors didn't help. They might have acted defensively. Certainly Hillary Clinton did. I mean, Stephanopoulos, George Stephanopoulos, you know, certainly has that criticism that Hillary's kind of bunker mentality, war room mentality didn't serve well dealing with even their Democratic allies in Congress. But nonetheless, um, Clinton spent the years of his presidency defending something that's going to go from an investigation into a bank failure in which the Clintons lost money on a real estate deal and investigating kind of every nugget of that into did he ever lie, and then picking up the Paula Jones and then Monica Lewinsky into the same investigation. And all the time, the prosecutor insisting, I'm just following the law, this is all I have to do. And he's really had a compartmentalized presidency um, in that he was defending charges and running the country at the same time. Another thing I'd like to discuss is kind of in the opposite vein, where grace was given to a president is Nixon and his tax troubles. And how this starts is that presidents used to be able to donate their papers and get a large tax deduction. Lyndon Johnson did. And that really angered some Senate Republicans who wanted to change the law. The trouble is by the time they get around to changing it, Nixon's now elected president. And so it really comes to bear on him. Nixon has a lot of pre-presidential papers, and he wants to get the maximum tax reduction. That alone, you're talking about something that's not a crime, but for the average citizen, seeing the president who's going to end up getting a huge tax deduction when we're all done is already something bad. But a lot of this is happening behind the scenes. Congress developed legislation in 1969 to limit the value of paper donations. In other words, all you can really do deduct now is the paper that it's printed on, not the full value that it might get in the market if you sold it to a publishing house, say. So um, in the long and short of it is, Nixon ends up donating 1,100 boxes of papers. And the deed that is recovered eventually says that those papers were donated on March 27, 1969. But that deed was backdated so that it could accommodate the legislation so that Nixon could get the tax deduct. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. His lawyers, the appraiser, had engaged in activities to backdate the documents. He was not eligible for this. The valuation of the collection was also raising eyebrows because the process was for the president to appoint his own appraiser. He appoints appraiser. They value the papers at $500,000. He's likely to have saved at least $250,000 over several years in taxes. It's not until 1973 under when the Watergate crisis starts coming out that newspapers find this information. And first of all, find the glaring large deduction taken by a president of the United States to where he's paying the same income tax as somebody making $15,000 when his income was 200000 A public interest law firm, tax analysts and advocates concluded that Nixon's deduction was unjustified. It's obvious that Internal Revenue Service agents and their superiors would be extremely reluctant to audit the tax returns of the president of the United States, and they did not. They call for an outside auditor. There is a committee set up of Congress to investigate, and eventually, because of a law that Nixon had signed, making that donation ineligible, they find that the tax deduction was ineligible. In addition, he had not claimed a capital gain on the sale of his house in California and a few other items. Now, Nixon started to claim he didn't know anything um, at a press conference He said he followed President Johnson's suggestion to claim a tax deduction for a donation of his papers, turned them over to the tax people who prepared the returns, and took that as a deduction. The tax deduction reflected the high value set on papers and lowered his income tax payments. Whether those amounts are correct or not, I do not know, because I have not looked at my returns. It was disingenuous to say that there, there's evidence from his own lawyers that he looked at the returns page by page. He expressed a lot of interest. He signed on to John Ehrlichman's plan to claim, that was his lawyer at the time, um, to obtain the maximum allowable deduction from gifts. There's letters from, uh, memos from Ehrlichman saying that he wanted to be sure his business deductions included all allowable items and he wanted to take the maximum allowable charitable deduction. He does end up paying. Uh, his tax, he pays about half of his um, $400,000, which is about half of his worth by the time you get into all the penalties and the repayment of the taxes that he owed over various years for which deductions were made. You know, some in Congress salute him for making his payments. William Cohen, a uh, Republican of Maine, said that the Revenue Service had conducted only a hasty investigation and insufficient information was gathered. Really, it's true. The IRS looked at, did not really sufficiently looked at Nixon's taxes, but merely accepted them the way that you get that acceptance from the IRS when you file your taxes. On the other hand, a supporter of Nixon, Charles Wiggins of California, representative, said that the whole tax matter was a non-issue and the president had committed no wrongdoing. So you see both sides at the time of this discussion. 
head of the IRS at the time, Folsom says, in the case of an ordinary taxpayer whose return has been as deficient as Mr. Nixon's, the Revenue Service would have recommended one of three courses of action. Justice Department begin prosecution for criminal tax fraud. Let the department investigate whether there had been criminal fraud or that litigation begin for civil fraud. The Washington Post points out, a person who signs his tax return is responsible for it, regardless of who else works on it. We have never heard of a president who confessed himself so sublimely aware of the activities of his closest associates. Citizens are left to reflect that, whatever pressures of their own business, they were required by law to take responsibility for the tax returns that they signed. I bring up these two cases so you have bipartisan view of the thing of two different areas where prosecutors saying, you know, we had to follow it. In some cases they did, in some cases they didn't, in some cases they give grace, in some cases they don't. The the partisanship on both sides comes out something like on one hand, president is busy, stop annoying them. We don't want every little lawsuit, every little um some DA in some remote corner of the country coming up with charges and just because they don't like the partisan decisions of an office that is, in the end of the day, political. And on the other hand, it's like, well, if no one's above the law, then then we can't discourage people from doing it. In the case of Nixon's taxes, the IRS had decided, mostly had decided until they were pressured, that should leave a president alone. Alvin Bragg's case has been criticized. Trump's lawyer says, for instance, no one's above the law, but no one's beneath the law either. And, you know, if there's any other name, then he wouldn't be prosecuted. On the other hand, Bragg, you know, to the extent he's talking about it, because this is not a speaking indictment where everything they have is going to be, is is been made public. They lay out 34 felonies in the indictment, not misdemeanors, based on the theory that the falsification of business records constitutes felonies because they were done to cover up crimes. Well, let me just take that for a second. We went back to talking about misdemeanors before that it's, you know, it's a misbehavior. It's improper conduct. But if you start doing A, a pattern of misdemeanors, you're doing it a lot. And B, you're not just doing a misdemeanor, just that. You're doing it towards a purpose, a crime. There are New York state laws that come to play. Here, here's what we do know. Bragg does not have to run the course out on those crimes. He doesn't have to prove those secondary crimes. He doesn't have to try him for those crimes is a better way to say that. Just has to indicate what they are. And then Trump's lawyers, once they know, are going to be free to defend that. Probably on intent. Okay, you're saying that, but he didn't know at this time. And and it's a pretty weak case. Things like that will probably come up in the defense. His attorneys will get... Details from discovery process and file a bill of particulars, which means they'll get greater detail of what Bragg has about the charges. If, for instance, Bragg is saying that he's falsifying records to cover up possibly federal campaign finance violations, his lawyers can come and, and, and say, look, Bragg is a Manhattan DA attorney, can't prosecute federal crimes. But Bragg possibly has multiple crimes such as tax purposes, which might be in his jurisdiction. This is the thing. We know the misdemeanor part. It all stems from Donald Trump having a meeting with his lawyer, Michael Cohen, uh, tabloid executive David Pecker, to set up any, you know, a catch and kill operation, look for any negative stories, and let's pay off people, do what we have to do. And that's where it all comes from. There's three cases. There's the doorman, the Trump Tower. There's the... Karen McDougal, former Playboy model, and the Stormy Daniels, each receiving a playoff. He denies uh, any relationship with any of them. All of this, you know, what's the real, what's the other thing to talk about here? And it's the politics. And I think it's an interesting time for this to come up because I do believe we were facing a situation where Trump was still a viable candidate for the Republican nomination, in my opinion, because it's such a strong group of grassroots, you know, that if you take a place like Iowa, and I think he would have beat DeSantis there. It might have been tougher. Um, but the other thing that was occurring right before this indictment was announced is that there were starting to be some questions about DeSantis, starting to be a little bit less support for him out there 
his statement on Ukraine, in my opinion, just ill-advised. Now, I'm not a, a I'm, it's not my job to be a Republican political consultant, but just ill-advised opened up a lot. I, I mean, I understand why he did it probably politically, to get some of the MAGA vote. At the same time, it opened up opportunities for other Republican candidates, you know, Pence, Scott, to possibly Haley. I think you're going to have a large field of Republicans. What this indictment does is there are kind of martyr effects, certainly, that's going to happen. And if you look at Iowa, maybe New Hampshire, you know, right now, I think it's kind of flattened the DeSantis campaign right at the time where he needs to get started, puts Trump in the front runner spot because he's got an issue. So I think it's revived within the Republican primary, the Trump campaign. And then if you look at the other side of politics, what um, Democrats would say, is that okay, that may be the case, and Trump may get the nomination now, but in a general election, an indictment for most voters or person under trial running for president because this is going to take a while with all the motions and various things, will you know be a negative in a general election? I think it's that's an open question. I don't really have an answer to that one. The the example we have is Eugene Debs ran in you know as a socialist in 1920 um, behind bars, but got a million votes. Probably not good in a general election to be running for trial. But there's also a lot of people who there's a martyr effect and there's a victimhood effect and. A lot's going to depend on how people view what comes out about the charges and the like. In the short term, in the GOP side of politics, I think you really put Trump back in contention where the party was probably going to have an ugly fight, but probably looking for a way to get rid of him, or at least a, a lot of people were, and put him to the side, run somebody else. I don't know if it would have been DeSantis at this point. I just feel like DeSantis was hitting a crater, and I feel like there was a there's probably an opportunity for another person to emerge. But that's speculative. That's the politics of it. So I also think that this kind of martyr effect will fizzle out over time. And once it does, you'll see a more competitive primary that we might have expected otherwise. Best I can say for now. Uh, I don't have a lot of answers on this. I'm not here to tell you what's going to happen or what what is definite. That a president runs into some criminal trouble has happened before. It just hasn't reached the official indictment stage outside of impeachment. I want to thank you for listening. And our website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you want to support me, please do. I have a Patreon, and um, we'll be adding more materials there. I add things as I can as I go to the library and look up new stuff. Thanks for listening.